Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. This episode of The Serial Dynasty is sponsored by Sean T. Fitness. Sean T. is a motivator and a life changer. Sean's website, seantfitness.com, is jam-packed full of material that will change your life. From free music and motivation to workout programs, apparel, and podcasts. You can get it all at seantfitness.com. And don't forget to check out Sean's podcast, Trust and Believe, and dig deeper. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Serial Dynasty. I'm your host, Bob Ruff, and I want to take this moment to remind all of you that this will be the last installment of the Serial Dynasty. As I've mentioned on previous episodes, the show will go on, and our pursuit for truth and justice will never stop. However, next week, on October 18th, the name of this podcast will officially be changed to the Truth and Justice Podcast. As I've mentioned before, for all of you who are already subscribed to the Serial Dynasty, you won't have to do anything. Next week, when the episode drops, you'll just notice that it'll say the Truth and Justice Podcast, and there'll be a new logo. And speaking of the logo, I want to give a huge shout-out to Tate Krupa, who's done an amazing job on the new logo, and I can't wait to reveal it next week. And while I'm giving thanks, I want to thank you all again for all of your contributions to the GoFundMe campaign that has made all of this possible. At this point, we are only about $3,500 away from reaching our final goal. So if any of you want to help contribute and get us to the finish line, just go to GoFundMe.com slash TruthAndJustice or go to our homepage, SerialDynasty.com and click the link. And again, I thank all of you who have already contributed and made all of this possible. Last week on The Serial Dynasty, I interviewed Jim Trainum, and I have to say that interviewing Jim was one of the most interesting conversations I've ever had on the show. Jim is a great guy, and he's extremely knowledgeable, and we're all very lucky to have had him on the show last week. After the interview, I started going back to the case and looking back through the evidence, and I started trying to apply what I've learned from Jim to a lot of the evidence. And to me, something just wasn't adding up. Like Jim said, the interrogation tactics that were used were not good. But on paper, Jim is correct. It looks like they followed the evidence. The way this case was documented, they took the steps that they should have taken to get where they ended up. But what then occurred to me was, what if these weren't honest mistakes? And so I thought that one of the best things we could do is get a Baltimore City cop or a former Baltimore City cop on the show to look at things from that angle, not just from police and interrogation approaches in general, but specifically from the Baltimore PD to hear what they have to say and their take on the case. And so with that being said, I have here on the line with me today, Mr. Michael A. Wood Jr.,
Michael, thanks for being on the show today and uh, agreeing to come on and talk to us a little bit about the Baltimore PD tactics. And before we get into talking about this case, um, I think a lot of my listeners know exactly who you are, but I'm sure there's some that don't. So can can you kind of explain your your background and how you really became a public figure over the last several months? To make a pretty long story as short as possible, I went into the Marine Corps at 17. I was in what is essentially their SWAT team, the unit called FAST. I went straight from there to the police department where I served for 11 years. I was a patrol officer. I was a uh, narcotics uh, street enforcer. I was a major case narcotics detective. Uh, and then I was a sergeant where I supervised in patrol and did some work in headquarters. I came to be uh, uh, an occasional name in police discussions because after Freddie Gray in Baltimore, I really kind of got just fed up with the covering up that uh, police do in the, in the culture. And I uh, decided I was going to take down that blue wall of silence, uh, regardless of how the critics would have looked at me. So I just started trying to be as vocal as possible about the reforms I think we need in policing. Now, if I remember correctly, this all started with a few tweets, right? Yeah. So when Tamir Rice was murdered, I was kind of like reaching a final straw on being disgusted with uh, cops covering for cops and realizing some of the things that I did. And I thought it wouldn't happen in Baltimore. It couldn't happen in Baltimore. And then when it happened here, it, it was just too close to home. And, and I just, I had to start talking about just kind of how we function in policing systematically. It's a great thing that you're doing. I'm sure you take a lot of flack for it, but it's, for me, from the fire department side, you know, there is that bond that we have where, you know, we're always looking out for each other. But I admire you for taking the step to, just say, you know, wrong is wrong and, and we're going to talk about it because, and, and that's kind of what this podcast is doing is trying to bring things to light, bring them to the public's eyes. So hopefully people are forced to do something about it and make a change. Right. It's these systems that play into somebody like a nod being in the situation that he's in. Now, Michael is very familiar with the case, correct? I, I'm not, not like you, but uh, <laughs> I know it pretty well. And uh, did you listen to the Jim Trainum interview that I did last week? I did. So what was your take on kind of what I said before, how Jim Trainum's perspective is assuming the cops are doing the right thing? Do you feel like the detectives in this case had justice in mind and in, in doing their best to do the right thing? Somebody like Jim is a trainer. They, they are probably the few professionals that we actually have in law enforcement. So they see everything in this. So this is how we do it. This is the, you know, the officers are thinking of these things and these tactics that we train them. And I really don't think that's very much the case. I, I think we're led by our culture. And when you say, are they out for justice? There's no system in place that allows for an officer to even be out for justice. What they're out for is closing the case because that's the metric that they're judged by and everything they are incentivized to do is to close that case, not find the truth. That is not, that is not a metric that would get praise or encouragement towards. Okay. And you're speaking specifically from your experiences in Baltimore. I don't think we're, I personally don't think we're limited to Baltimore. I, this is, this is the culture and the policies that are in place throughout the country. 
Okay, and from your experiences as a detective, you said you're a major case narcotics detective, right? Mm-hmm. Did you feel pressure from above when you were investigating a case? It doesn't matter where you are or what kind of police work you're doing. Yeah, cops are, are like regular workers. You do what the system incentivizes you to do. So in narcotics, you're incentivized to get as many arrests as possible with uh, large seizures as well. So that's what you get. You don't care whether it can result in a conviction because no one is judging you on whether there is a conviction. You're being judged on the seizure and the arrest. So in homicide, you're judged by the case being closed. It doesn't matter whether it's exceptional circumstances, whether it's because you arrested the right guy or the wrong guy. It just matters that the case is closed. So you you want the clearance rate and you want the case off the book. So in narcotics, I'm pressured to get those numbers up, those arrests. The pressure from supervisors for a homicide detective is to simply close the case in the easiest fastest way possible. So very often, narratives in narcotics and in homicide cases are driven by a preconceived narrative that the detective has where they pick and choose the evidence that will fit this preconceived narrative that will result in a closure. Do you think that that's what happened in this case? I think that happens in almost all cases because that's the metric. That's the incentive. When you have excellent police work that is seeking the truth, that's generally going to be your rebel detective. That's the guy you kind of think of in Hollywood who doesn't get along with everybody else and does things his own way. That guy's an outcast. The good detective is the one that just gets the gets the clearance. Gets the closure. That's the the goal is the closure. The goal is to if you watch The Wire and you see homicide, there's literally a white dry erase board that has the homicide victim's name in red. And your goal is to turn it to black. And when you turn it to black, that means it's closed. The actual goal is to turn that thing black. It doesn't matter how you do it. The big hang-up for me, and I think for a lot of people in this case, is Jay must be involved because Jay knew where the car was. I don't really think necessarily that Jay did know where the car was or really knew anything. Do you think that's something that's out of the question in this case in, in the city of Baltimore? I doubt. Uh, that those, those officers, those detectives don't come off to me as people willing to exert such effort. <laughs> okay. I, I, I think their case and its narrative and its path is, is essentially based upon laziness and, and sloppy work. Okay. So, and that kind of would fall in with some of the things that Jim Trainum said, which is there's a lot of other things that they could do, but there was not some grand conspiracy that the police were involved in as far as creating all this and coercing a witness. You, you think that that sounds a little far-fetched in this case? Uh, as in coercing a witness, absolutely not. I think that uh, the idea that they would get a vehicle and then tow it and then try to cover that, I think that's ridiculous. Whether they will coerce Jay to tell a story that's completely fabricated in order to get court favor, yeah, that's, that's nearly expected. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh, yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. 
Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. I know obviously it's in the realm of possibilities, but it may be likely in your mind, knowing what you know about the case, that the police, that these detectives knew where the car was, and then, you know, not that they towed it and moved it, but they knew where it was, and then they basically told Jay to tell a story about where the car was. Precisely. Yeah, I mean, it, it's almost... The, the kind of training in policing almost allowed that to happen with good intentions sometimes. It's, it's just policing tactics are, are that poor and that were incentivized by the, the wrong measures. So it's easy to overlook things. You know what I mean? Um, can you expand on that a little bit? Yeah, so I, I don't mean that there, there can necessarily be, be malice. They may just be fitting that bill of doing the easy thing and when you have something such as like read techniques and where you lead witnesses, they may be believing that that information that they're getting is good. They could be like a torturer waterboarding that thinks they're getting good information because they're getting it. It doesn't mean that it's actual information. I think we give police entirely too much credit for their education and intent. They're not very smart. That's what I'm saying. You want to think that these are detectives. These are homicide detectives. Like they got brains. That, that, that don't. That doesn't mean anything. Yeah, you have some brilliant homicide detectives, but that does not mean that just because they are in homicide, that they are these intelligent people that understand what they are doing. These people, a lot of them, they're really just winging it. They have, they don't have a concept of what they're doing, so they could be doing something that's entirely so to say, leading the witness, and they have no idea that they're leading the witness. Right, yeah, and that's why Jim has gone on to teach classes and how to avoid false confessions, because he did that accidentally himself uh, at one point. You know, his story was years ago that he was interrogating a witness for hours and got a confession and then found out later that she had a rock-solid alibi. She was some, they, they knew she didn't do it, and he'd gotten a false confession out of here, and that's kind of what opened his eyes to it was he didn't realize at the time that that was something that you know, that he was doing. So he's one of the few, I think, that is is realized. I think he described it on the interview as it's like teaching a doctor how to perform a procedure or prescribe a medicine and not teaching them what the side effects are. Yeah, I mean, there. Uh, I, I had a thing in an article. I don't even remember how I phrased it. It sounded like really eloquent at the time when I phrased it, but I probably won't be able to do it again. It, just that uh, we're taught in policing, you're entirely taught what to think and not how to think. So when you go through that, you just follow these blind procedures because someone told you that this is what you're supposed to do. But no one in policing steps up and, and says, wait, wait a minute, why are we doing this? So there's all these bad investigative techniques and all these bad incentives that maybe like these, these guys can hear this kind of stuff and say, and, like, maybe put it together and realize, like, oh, my investigation isn't what I thought it was. And, and they can talk about this. It's not necessarily true that they had malice. It's that the training in policing is so subpar that if I tell you how bad it is or you imagine how bad it is, it's worse. 
worse than we can imagine. Yeah, I mean, like, literally, so when people hear these things, when they see the police violence uh, and brutality stuff, they're thinking, well, cops are supposed to de-escalate. But then you go and you see that in, in most of these major cities, you're taking somebody that may have a GED and you're, they're 21 and you're putting them into an academy and you're giving them eight hours of de-escalation training. Not enough they to really sink in. They don't know how to de-escalate. It's been eight hours. They don't know what they're doing. So that just invades all of law enforcement. There's almost no training. It's just like winging it and learning on the job. So officers will, like the, the officers involved in this case may be feeling defensive hearing all this criticism, but it's not their fault that they didn't have the training and that they didn't understand, possibly. You know, the malice may not be there, but this investigation that we're talking about is crap. It's crap. And we have to look at that and say, like, this is a crap investigation. Whether it not did it or not, who cares? This is not a case that's sufficient. So, like, in policing, and, and you see these prosecutors now, like, defending the case. I mean, like, what are we doing? This is a crap case. It's obvious. But maybe the maybe the detectives can hear this and step up and say, it's a crap case, you know? Right. What bothers me about this one is I'm not a detective, and I'm looking at this case in... Just looking back 16 years later, it's obvious to me at a certain point that they had to have figured out that they had the wrong guy. Is that system so bad as far as the the incentivized clearance rates that these detectives will continue on and put somebody away for life when they really know in their mind that they've got the wrong guy? Yeah, I mean, it happens in drug work all the time, so there's no reason to not believe that it wouldn't happen in a homicide case. Like, how it's justified is that there's this mentality that the, these suspects were already bad guys, and you just didn't get them for what they did do. You just got it for something else, but it doesn't matter. It's still that us versus them, and those people are them. Do you think that applies, or I guess, do you know if that applies, since you were actually in the situation, in a situation like this, where that us versus them mentality does it extend beyond like like you worked in the in the narcotics unit so you're dealing with drug dealers and things on a daily basis and I can understand that mentality there that I know this guy killed somebody last week and he might not have done this drug deal but I'm getting him for something but then it's like this when you're talking about a kid that's never been in trouble an honor roll student like is that does that us versus them mentality extend beyond just the the inner city kind of drug ring type of population uh I mean to be completely honest, I don't think it, it extends to a white kid that's in the county, but I certainly think it can extend to a nod. So do you think that race could have played into this case? I, I, I'm not sure if it's race. Uh, certainly uh, certainly the Islamic part. Uh, I don't know. I mean, maybe maybe it's race, uh, but it, it, I think it's a, it possibly a combination of race and religion. That's entirely likely, especially on a subconscious level. I mean, we're people and we have biases. And that's just one of these things that I've been trying to expose that we have these biases and they need to be addressed. Um, I'm not going to call them racist, but we have a system that allows for that practice. And we have a society that would, uh, especially at that time, as well as now, would view a Muslim from uh, from the Middle East as, um, as, as definitely a them. Yeah. As far as the us versus them mentality. Yeah. Yeah, completely. One of the problems in policing is that with all that power, you become, a, like, you express the worst in society as you are constantly surrounded by the worst in society. 
So you have all these biases. That's why you have the Innocence Project where they go out and they find dramatic levels of innocent people that are incarcerated. So it's not that Ed Nod is the exception. Ed Nod is nearly the rule. Oh, I, I completely we, agree with we that. We know this exists, you know? Yeah, and it's not just Baltimore. I mean, I'm seeing, as this podcast continues on, I'm going to be taking other cases, and I had I had put out to my listeners to, you know, send me ideas for other cases of people that you think were wrongfully convicted. And, man, I've gotten... I That's bet a I've terrible gotten, question. <laughs> yeah, oh, my goodness. I've had... I'm trying to remember the last time I looked in the... Because I move them all into a certain folder in my email. I think there's somewhere around 350 to 400 you know, when I, I've read through them and some of them are just, Hey, check this out. It's a news article, but a lot of them are, Hey, this is my cousin and these are some facts of the case. And it's just like, it's just amazing to me. I'm constantly every single day getting two, three of these cases in and a lot of them, most of them look like they're probably right. It's probably, uh, an innocent man sitting in prison. So it, 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 it definitely happens all the time. Yes. <laughs> so we shouldn't be surprised by this. Right. Our goal or my goal here is to at least, and, and that's, you know, I really appreciate you coming on because it, to bring this to the public eye and, and let people be aware of the fact that this is happening. You know, I thought it was really cool. I don't know if you heard it or not, but, you know, Undisclosed last week, they broadcast from inside of a prison and had prisoners talking, you know, about their views on the case and things. And they made some really good points about how we dehumanize as a society prisoners. And we just assume if they're in prison, they deserve to be there and almost think of them as less than human. And, and the fact is there's a lot of people in that prison that didn't do anything wrong. And we know that there's a ton of people in there that didn't do anything wrong. And we still don't seem to wake up to needing to look at this in an entirely different light. Exactly. Okay, another question that I wanted to ask you is, you know, one of the revelations from Susan Simpson from Undisclosed several months back was she was analyzing the audio tapes of Jay Wilde's interviews. And she pointed out, if you remember the, the, the tap, tap, tap on the paper, it was eye opening when you really listen. It's like they were, they were absolutely leading him. And, you know, and then there's other people out there that say this is crazy conspiracy theory. As a Baltimore detective, what did you think when you heard that? So I, I was listening to the podcast. And I heard them say it. And I and I heard the sound. So I, I just tried to envision to myself, like, so I've done a lot of, like, lineups. Usually they're called a six-pack, where they have the, the six pictures on there. So I've done a lot of that. And I've imagined myself sitting down at the interview room. So I sat down at a chair, and I pulled up to my table, and I imagined that I had a a photo array, and I was showing the person and talking to them and to give them like, I wanted them to see a particular one. And when I did that, I reached my hand across the table and went tap, tap, tap. Of course that's what that is. There is, I cannot even imagine an alternative. Like, in that room, the way these rooms are, it's just a little white room with one table. No sound comes from anywhere. Okay. So if you hear something, it's an action from a human. There, okay. There's nothing else in there to make noise. And that, that's what you do. I mean, it's like, it's almost like like run the experiment right now. If you don't believe me, slide a piece of paper across the table, keeping your hand on the piece of paper and wanting to show somebody to pick a particular thing on there. Like you were playing a card game or something or like, no, read this line. You go tap, tap, tap to get right. their attention. It's, I mean, it's, it's like, it's, it's like an innate human thing, like sneezing or something. Okay, so was your take on that? Did it? Did those interviews sound to you like they were absolutely leading him along some sort of narrative? 
They're certainly leading the learn. I, I, I don't think there's any question. So when I finished listening to Serial, I think I sounded just like those prisoners that were interviewed in Undisclosed. I was like, I don't know. I don't know whether it not did it or not. But what I could say for sure is that he needs to be let out of jail because this is not a solid case. They did not prove this case. This doesn't even win a civil suit. So we're below 50%. Right. And after I started listening to Disclosed, I was like, oh, God, he's innocent. This case is preposterous. It's a fabrication. It's, it's a fairy tale. What is your take on, because, you know, there's the most common argument I hear from anyone that says that they're 100% convinced that Adnan is guilty is... Well, of course he's guilty. He was convicted. They convinced 12 jurors to convict him. What do you make of that? What do you make of the fact that he was convicted unanimously from a jury? So anyone that says that, whether they want to feel ill will of me or not, they're willfully ignorant. There is an entire organization dedicated to exposing how many innocent people are in prison. And it's, it's, it's unbelievable how many people they have already freed from prison and when you're taking that, they've only had this small sample size to look at. So if you were to take their small sample size, where they may they may look at uh, you know tens of thousands of cases and they've freed hundreds of individuals and proven their innocence through things like DNA and undeniable innocence. That's why it's called the Innocence Project. Right. And and, and so if you extrapolate that out to the entire prison population in America, the largest one in the entire world, then there are thousands, if not tens of thousands, the hundreds of thousands of innocent people in jail. I'm willing to say, especially if you talk about narcotics and whether they were guilty at that moment, I would imagine you're talking close to a million innocent people in jail. This may be a loaded question, but how do we fix it? Do you think there's a solution? Do you think it can be fixed? Yeah, entirely. Uh, whether we do it or not, I don't know. So it, my basic are that policing needs to become a profession. It's not a profession. There, there is no real trading. The reality in life right now is that politicians are paid off by corporate donors and they don't represent the community. So uh, it sounds like very big picture, but my first step is always that we need a constitutional amendment to overrule Citizens United so that we can get politicians that represent the people. When we have politicians that represent the people, we can put these progressive law enforcement leaders and I'll say it like myself, in these agencies so we can change the metrics and we can end the drug war and we can start policing with some empathy that's science-driven and not ideology-driven. Do you think it'll ever happen? Yeah, I don't think there's a choice. I, I People that know me will, will know I, I'm, I'm very much associated with Black Lives Matter movement. And and I think that that movement is, is directly tied into the much-needed police reform that affects the lives of everybody in this nation on, on one level or another. And I think that this is, this movement is a revolution, a second civil rights movement, and this movement is going to result in dramatic police reform. It's just a matter of how long it takes and, and how much uh, politicians resist doing the right thing. All right. Well, Michael, I really appreciate you coming on today and answering all of our questions. I know you're a busy guy and doing lots and lots of interviews. You said you had some other projects you're working on too, didn't you? You said you're uh, you're actually working on a documentary. We just finished up two documentaries. Um, they'll be out soon. Vice's uh, HBO's fixing the system with President Obama. I was on that recently, and although I filmed all day long, I only got to 
speak for, you know, I was only on there for five minutes. I swear, I said much more intelligent things behind the <laughs> scenes that nobody got to see. And, and, um, uh, we have some other projects in the work that I'm working closely with Kwame Rose from Baltimore and a local activist. And, uh, you know, we'll see how those come to fruition from some bigger projects that hopefully can uh, have a uh, larger influence. And I work with Justice Together, Sean King's organization, uh, looking for police reform. Great. Well, hey, I wish you, I wish you well with all of those projects. And again, Michael, I want to thank you for coming on the show and sharing your story with my listeners. And no problem, Bob. And, uh, I mean, it's your, it's, you have to give credit to your li- listeners because they're the ones that did keep saying, Hey, you, you, I had to talk to you and, and this had to take place. So the power of Twitter once again. That's right. The power of the, <laughs> the power of the people on Twitter. All right. Well, That's thanks. Right. <laughs> thank you to all my listeners for convincing Mike to come on the show. And thank you, Michael. And hey, man, have a great night. It's great talking to you. Hey, thanks, Bob. Be safe, brother. All right. You too, man. All right, I hope all of you enjoyed the interview with Michael A. Wood. And like he said, I want to thank all of you listeners who, once again, together we are strong, all came together and convinced Mike to come on the show. And I definitely think it was worth the time spent to hear the perspective of an actual Baltimore City police officer. And I really love that we're getting all these different perspectives in here, where we have Jim Trainum's perspective on the case and Michael A. Wood Jr.'s perspective on the case. Uh, we've got Jim Clemente coming up who was a retired FBI profiler. So no promises yet, but it sounds like we should, keep your fingers crossed, be able to make that interview happen for the episode that'll drop on October 18th. And Jim will be looking at the case based on the burial scene photos, the notes from the disinterment, and the autopsy report. And he's going to try to generate a profile for us like he did when he was in the FBI. Now next up, as I mentioned last week, there's been a combined effort to fill in one of the missing links of this case. And so we're going to take a quick break to hear from our sponsor, and then we'll get right into that. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. Laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right, ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. For many of us who have been investigating this case, the revelations about Don's timesheet were huge eye-openers. He's a suspect that was written off by the police very early. He was never investigated by the Baltimore PD, and he was written off by most of us. Since we figured out that not only did Don not have an alibi for that day, but he intentionally forged an alibi before he was ever questioned by the police and before Hayes' case was anything more than a missing persons investigation. Since this new information has come to light, I think that Don has moved into the role of one of our prime suspects in this murder. These behaviors are not consistent with the actions of an innocent person. In fact, it's quite nonsensical. 
Don told the police, and he told Mandy from the Anihi group, that he just thought Hay had went to see her father, or that she was staying with a friend. In all of his statements during the early stages of this investigation, Don never indicated that he was worried about Hay. In fact, in the Anihi group report, she noted that he didn't seem very concerned, nor did he seem very emotionally attached to Hay. So I asked myself the question, if he just thinks she ran away, or went to go see her father, and he didn't really care anyway, why forge the alibi? He wasn't a suspect at that point, because there was no crime at that point that anyone knew about. It would certainly appear, in my opinion, that Don was covering himself in two ways. Telling the police, and telling the Anihi group, that he wasn't concerned and there was nothing to worry about, and presenting them with a narrative that would explain her disappearance, seems to be an attempt to throw the police off the trail. But then at the same time, behind the scenes, he's creating an alibi for himself. Within a week of the murder, before he's interviewed by the police, either with his mother's password or through his mother, he generated this false timesheet. Now what I'm telling you is nothing more than my opinion, but in my opinion, these actions alone make Don suspect number one. Knowing all of this has led me to continue to investigate Don further. We've looked in depth at his timesheets, we've read his police interview notes, we've read the notes from Mandy at the Anihi Group, and I'm attempting to do what the Baltimore PD never did which is to figure out what Don was doing on that day, in the days following. And throughout my investigation, there's been one thing that just kept bothering me. One thing that didn't make sense. We know that the timesheet was falsified. That's been confirmed unanimously by every LensCrafter source that we've asked, including corporate. We know that the extra timesheet that was created was created with a Hunt Valley employee ID number which I can only assume was because Don's mother was the Hunt Valley general manager, and general managers do not have access to the employee records from any store but their own. So we start to paint this picture of what was going on. But the huge gap was this. On February 1st, Detective O'Shea called the Owings Mills store, and the general manager at Owings Mills read off to him the exact times that were on that timesheet. Her doing that never added up to me. As the general manager of Owings Mills, she doesn't have access to that Hunt Valley timesheet. When they called her, she would have looked in the system and seen that Don was off that day. So where did she get those times? Well, we just have Detective O'Shea's interview notes, so we don't know. I thought maybe she called over to the Hunt Valley store and asked over there. But that doesn't make sense. She would have immediately known something was up. Don's times should have been on the Owings Mills timesheet. Or the other option was that Don had his timesheet in his back pocket because he was working that day, and maybe he told her the times. But again, that doesn't make sense. From every LensCrafters employee that I've spoken with, including all the general managers, if that Owings Mills general manager looked in the system and saw that he wasn't working that day, and either Don presented her with a timesheet that said that he was, or he called the other store and they presented her with a timesheet that said that he was working that day. Either one of those two things would have been an immediate red flag. She would have known in a second that that timesheet was forged, according to all of my sources. So how could this be possible? In order to find the answer to that question, I started looking for that general manager. I searched high and low for her. I wanted to talk to her to see if she would tell me what happened on that day or if she remembered the situation. But I couldn't find her anywhere. I searched through social media, I did background checks, criminal records. I just couldn't find her. So as is the nature of this show, I reached out to some people that have helped me with some of these investigations in the past. Other listeners with other resources. Online user, When the Worlds Collide, 
who you all have heard about before on the Undisclosed podcast, brought something to my attention. The reason that I couldn't find this general manager was because in 2007, she changed her name. And she didn't just change her name. She changed her name to the same last name as Don's mother. While I was conducting this investigation, Rabia Chowdhury was working on the same angle. When I mentioned this to her, she confirmed that through her investigation, that this person that changed her last name to the same last name as Don's mother was indeed the general manager of the Owings Mills Lenscrafters in 1999, the one who took the call from Detective O'Shea and confirmed Don's alibi. So with this new information, I started pulling background checks, looking for criminal records, address histories, and late last week, I was able to confirm that the worst-case scenario was in fact true. Don's parents divorced in 1991. From 1993 through today, this Owings Mills general manager has been living in the same house with Don's mother. And on February 1st, 1999, the woman who appears to be Don's stepmother is the one who confirmed his alibi. The only person that had the credentials to create that false timesheet was Don's mother. And it just so happens that the only person that could have exposed the forged time card to the police was her partner. If Don is the one who committed this murder, the cover-up was a family affair. I'm sure all of you already plan on doing this, but in case you weren't, you all need to tune in to the Undisclosed Podcast tomorrow night, where they will be discussing the legal ramifications of this discovery. Thank you to Johnny Rhodes of Slightly Subversive Music for creating all the music for the show. Thank you to Jill at Pod Transcriptions for creating all of our transcripts. And a big thank you to Sean T. at Sean T. Fitness for all of the support in so many ways you provided us over the last three months. And again, I want to give a special thanks to Tate Krupa for designing all of our logos, including the new Truth and Justice logo that will be revealed next week. She put a ton of time into this logo, and I am just floored at what a great job she did on it. And as always, I want to thank all of you listeners for all of your continued support. I know we haven't had the opportunity to read listener emails the last couple of weeks, but definitely get your emails into theories at SerialDynasty.com in the next couple of days. It is my full intention next week to try to get through several listener emails. And thank you all again for your support through the GoFundMe campaign. As I mentioned at the beginning of the show, we're only about $3,500 away from our goal. If you'd like to contribute to the Truth and Justice podcast GoFundMe fund, go to GoFundMe.com slash Truth and Justice or go to SerialDynasty.com and click the GoFundMe link. Of course, I always love hearing from all of you on Twitter. However, be aware that our handle has now changed. We are no longer at Serial Dynasty. In fact, after I changed the username, a Reddit troll took over the at Serial Dynasty handle. They've been reported to Twitter because they are posing as me on there, but just as a fair warning to all of you, if you go to the at Serial Dynasty feed, that is not me. Our new feed is at Truth Justice Pod. That's at Truth Justice Pod. So if you haven't already, please follow us on Twitter at Truth Justice Pod. I always love interacting with all of you there. And you can always get a hold of me on the Serial Dynasty Facebook page. And just another reminder that this will be the last week that we will be called the Serial Dynasty Podcast. So as you continue to spread the word and tell your friends about the show, 
Tell them starting next week to look for the Truth and Justice podcast. And for now, I'm signing off. And for the last time, this has been the Serial Dynasty. That's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Full work limited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware. You've worked hard for what you have. Your money, your assets, your 401k, and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com aware. Terms apply. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware.